Welcome to Rhythm Uncovered, where we'll talk about all the stories, including people of rhythm, and how they came to be what they are. Okay, hi, this is Max, and we are going to get started with the prologue. Uh, I'm Katie, and first of all, it was in 1968. It was a Nebraska State Championship for basketball, and the main player that was focusing throughout the whole story is Dwayne Dillard, an African-American superstar. And the championship was Central versus Lincoln Northeast. This is Alex, and another important player in this part of the story is George Wallace. Um, he was a governor from Alabama, and he and he decided to run for president. And on his campaign, he came to Omaha, and he was also um, a vehement uh, segregationist. Okay, so moving on to chapter one, we are introduced to everyone on the team. So we have Willie Frazier. John Biddle, Jeff Crum, Harvey Josen, Roy Hunter, Bill Griffin, and then they include people like uh, Sue Glenn, who's Frazier's girlfriend, uh, Vicki Dollies, who was a pretty cheerleader, and uh, Warren Marquise, who was the biology teacher and the varsity basketball coach. Uh, this team of players was primarily African-American, and this caused many problems with the principal, uh, Jarrether Nelson, who was slightly racist and against everything that they played for. This led to a problem with the team starting an all-black squad, and there were many people who were against them even being on the team in general. Um, what's also important to note is the makeup of the school staff, yes. uh, which was predominantly white. Um, there was only one black faculty member um, named uh, Willis Wilda Stevenson, um, who taught business and typing. Um, at this time, there was also a rise in what's now known as hippie culture, um, and the people running the school kind of saw this as kids not working and being really lazy, and um, they really couldn't handle that kind of abrupt rebellion and change, so their principal, Nelson, um, decided to retire. Yeah, and basically just overall, chapter one was an introduction of, like, mostly the main characters and, like, the history behind Central. Um, and it also included other things like the Principal Nelson uh, and what he did at Central until his retirement. Um, I would honestly say the beginning chapter could really tie into something recent just because Central back then was very much about silencing their students' voices who, like, disagreed and unfortunately it just like hasn't gotten that much better yeah i i think you know we've generally gotten more accepting of how students like want to express themselves be it through like the way they dress or the things they create but and i kind of get it out of school you have to keep some sense of order but you know at what expense is that for the students so chapter two focuses in more on their personal lives of the players and like their families and how that affected the person they came out to be, such as Dillard, his family wasn't all that perfect. It was very dangerous for him to like exist and his family was very broken. And I think this caused a lot of the issues he faced later on in his season where he had issues with uh, alcohol abuse and like not knowing how to treat people properly. Yeah, I would agree. And then Basically, just like in the beginning, it kind of goes through his life leading up until getting noticed by Coach Marcus, uh, which happened in like summer of 1965. 
And then Diller went on to enroll in Central uh, as a sophomore. Uh, he honestly just kind of like, he didn't leave his mother behind, but he just spent more time with his grandmother, Zilla. And then uh, it was closer to school and less crowded than his mother's apartment. And he also had a poor relationship with his mother. Uh, she was alcoholic and she was also very abusive towards him. Um, one other important part of this um, that it mentions is um, on July 3rd in 1966, um, there were riots that broke out um, in what is now North Omaha. Um, and um, he was arrested um, along with uh, about 100 other people. And this connects to, um, I think, uh, general tension and feelings that we see today within the black community. Um, because a lot of those problems that they were fighting for then still haven't been solved uh, with systemic racism. Um, so it's kind of just the natural, you know, way that people go when their voices aren't being heard. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you, Alex. Okay, so chapter three um, kind of generally talked a lot more about um, different um, people's influence in sports for black people. Um, so they talked about uh, Muhammad Ali, who was the heavy, heavyweight champion, who um, refused uh, to be drafted um, into the Vietnam War um, on like based on religious grounds. Um, and then there's also the st uh, Harry Edwards, who was a former college basketball and track star, um, who launched the revolt of the black athlete, and a few more. Um, but this kind of this chapter kind of just talks about how their their actions and the way they talked about politics, even within their sport, um, and the progression of their community influenced um, young people like the boys on the team. I think that um, the boys on the team really took like a great amount of like pride and like respect from these uh, athletic figures because like they're doing what they hope to do with their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another main topic of this chapter was just the like um, effects of redlining and basically redlining is uh, the historical event of keeping minority uh, people and also poor people out of like rich white neighborhoods mm -hmm. and the historical connection they made was when a boozer was refused to plot in Omaha uh, due to racism yeah and like the effects of race or redlining are still like very apparent today considering Omaha's the like, most segregated city in Omaha, or yeah. in the, like, nation. Yeah, because, I mean, even though there is no law on paper that says black people can't buy homes here, white people can't buy homes here, um, it's, it's really difficult to get out of um, the cycle of poverty to escape that neighborhood. So that's a lot like um, what we learned in, with Schaefer Cycle and how if you live in like a poor location or like don't have the same kind of like education or availability for different options and things for yourself, you'll end up getting stuck in a cycle where like you're not going to get a, as good of a job and then you're not going to get as much health care, which leads to a lot of like premature death and like a lot of destruction for like families and communities. Yeah. Okay, so moving into chapter four, we kind of get an inside view on this U.S. Supreme Court finally removing the laws against biracial marriage. And this chapter is also just centered around uh, Frazier and Sue Glynn's relationship. So another theme in this chapter would be the fact that 
The school board would not let the coach play five black uh, kids for starters since uh, they viewed it as like anti-white children and they wanted to send the correct message that like they wanted everyone included when really they just wanted to make sure that white people were included. Yeah, and this is a really good example of de facto segregation. Um, which means that it's segregation not based on any law, which would be de jure uh, segregation. Um, this has more to do with like cultural um, and like social uh, segregation that people like people do kind of interpersonally and that work within like the structure of culture and society at large outside of the law. Um, this um, has a lot to do with uh, resumes right now um, on for job applications. Um, we've heard that they're like people are making steps to remove like gender um, as a like an option on the actual form um, because people have like implicit bias um, when they see if someone circled male or female. Um, so by removing that, that's like a way of um, getting rid of another form of de facto segregation. Okay, so chapter five starts out with uh, Steve Ross driving and basically the entire team is in the car and their car breaks down. Um, somehow they still manage to get there. They get there 12 minutes before the tip off. Central ends up winning um, and they end up winning by 61 to 48. Um, and then they kind of go into this thing where they talk about how their nicknames are their mother's names. Uh, then in the chapter, they go on to talk about the 1966 Black, Black Panther Party and like all the violence that kind of came with it against them. And then finally, it's the start of Chambers programs, which they're pushing for whites to all be viewed as racist and send all Black people to die in the war. So in chapter six, um, the book just kind of talks about um, what was going on in the general like culture of North Omaha at the time and like what the boys' parents do. Um, some of the things they talk about like were popular um, was like the Dreamland Ballroom jazz concerts. Um, you know, they would go to bars, pool houses. Um, and it also talks about how important sports are to them um, because it was a way to kind of escape um, their general feeling of you know, hopelessness that can come with poverty. Um, and it was just a way to like be together in community and relax and have fun. So in chapter seven, it talks about Raznik, which is the Jewish hood. And they talk about like the specific area it's in and how it's like a very small section, but like no other type of person lived there. And it was like, um, it was all right for like who's in public and proud Jews from blacks. And they learned to get along with each other, but not with people who were simply white. Both the Jewish and the black communities understood that, like, they were being treated differently and, like, they needed to come up with a solution. But for them, it was simply, like, the white people are, like, not even trying. And then in chapter eight, um, Glenn's father supported Wallace and, like, really pushed her to not date Fraser and ended up pushing her down the stairs for choosing to date him anyway. And then a lot of the other boys had the same problems um, cause they would make like, they had different traditions and beliefs and like their parents would have like huge problems with the interracial 
dating and like several boys and girls tried to ignore the racial divide and then their white parents would frown on it and like try their best to like end the relationship in any way possible. Okay, so in chapter nine, we first start out with Wallace suspecting that more Democrats will vote for him than Republican. And then he goes on to speak to a political science class and he attracts over 250 protesters, including uh, Daryl Yurt, who was a junior at Central. And later there was an even larger protest and Yurt was among 5,400 protesters and on March 4th, on March 4th for another speech by Wallace. And they were led by Robert Burns and Reverend John McKayslin. Uh, one of Wallace's campaign managers was Dr. Bird, who was a professor at Creighton. And along with your Dillard was also at this protest. Um, this protest was met by major police brutality, which led to protesters burning down buildings and rioting. Um, and then it goes on to talk about uh, Howard Stevenson and he was a hired pawn shop guard and at age 16, he was shot by police during these protests. Uh, Dillard brings the protest to Central, and he leads a school protest, chanting Black Power, and then he ends up lighting a trash can on fire. Um, and then going into Chapter 10, um, Dillard was arrested with suspicion of possession of Molotov cocktails. Um, and he was found riding in a car with Nathaniel Goodwin, um, Calvin Brown, Lloyd Brown, Calvin um, he explained to uh, uh, Marcus uh, that um, he was playing basketball at Bryan Courts um, and but Webster did claim that he didn't know what was in the trunk and he couldn't see what the cops saw um, because like the back was open um, and he also said that they made up uh, there being like fire bombs um and Marky kept hearing over and over again that Dillard was just a felon and he didn't deserve to play for Central um and Marcus was debating whether or not to allow Dillard to play um but he, uh but he did say you cannot convict and punish the kid before he has a fair and legal trial um and Marky uh Marquis' phone kept on ringing um, with people threatening him. Um, and, you know, there, like, were wooden crosses found burning in his front yard, like a symbol of the KKK. Um, and so the game was moved from Omaha to Lincoln. Um, and in general, just, like, a, I think a really important current connection um, is kind of, like, the... Um, the wrong the wrongful like arrests that black people often face um i mean i know you know dylan diller did lead that protest at school but i think more than that black people are often presumed guilty without a fair trial um and that can lead to um a lot of the things that we see like in the news you know black people black people being shot by police um um, wrongful convictions, um, like um, really excessive sentences for nonviolent offenders. Um, and I, I think it's just important that we know that like this has been going on for a long time and isn't like a new problem. Yeah. Uh, and then moving into chapter 11. So Steve Moss refused to go to Lincoln after the events that had happened within the last three days it was his version of like his personal protest against uh wallace and the problems that uh he was causing 
And then uh, Moss thought uh, Marquis was a pimp and uh, was exploiting the different players at the expense of, like, all their academic success. And so uh, at the game, Marcus decided to bench Dillard for the first game of the tournament because he violated his training rules. I think that was probably a little too much of a punishment for him because I think, like, honestly, he was just out too late. And I think the team themselves all rallied around this point, but in the end, like, they caved and decided that they weren't all going to, like, not play just because one man couldn't because they didn't want to risk a championship. And uh, Frazier ended up having the best game of his year after Hunter took Dillard's place. And the game had, like, really extreme security with, like, state troopers, police, police dogs. Uh, A lot of, like, teacher and staff were also there at the principal's request. And the team was uh, cornered on campus. And it ended up with a dealer trying to sneak out and three teammates pinned him down so he couldn't leave. Yeah, and then going on to Chapter 12, since they did lose the game, uh, the atmosphere was, like, majorly shifted, and it was more quiet. And he kind of describes it as, like, how we were getting so far ahead with, like, all these, like, biracial relationships and all that. Uh, segregation kind of seemed more enforced after the game. Um, and then it goes on to talk about how Dillard's charges were all dropped uh, just because they didn't have enough evidence. And in April, Dillard was actually expelled for behavior that they deemed intolerable since the basketball season was over. Uh, then it talks about Sue Glenn, who dropped out um, because her parents asked her to after she told them about her pregnancy. Um, Hunter ended up taking a scholarship uh, to play at a junior college in North Platte. Um, Biddle uh, signed on at Dana College in Blair decided to work instead of going to college um, and attended summer school to graduate. Uh, Frazier intended tech for fall semester because he was short graduation credits. Um, And Dillard Dillard enrolled in Omaha School of Continuing Education so he could get um, his GED. Um, uh, Sue Glenn um, uh, did end up having her baby and Frazier was there with her. Um, they named the baby Robert Charles, um, and Frazier wanted to keep the baby, and so Sue agreed, but there were some complications with her pregnancy, and she was very sick, um, so she wanted to, you know, be back with her parents, but they only let her back um, on the condition that they give up their baby for adoption, and she did, Um and I think this, we can make a, a historical connection with this. Um, you know, there are plenty of instances, instances throughout American history where um, unwanted children or children who are deemed unworthy because of their parentage um, are essentially given up, um, pushed aside by society, um, forced to change um, in many different ways um, to fit this kind of structure that we have for them for better or for worse, um, you know, take like, um, indigenous people, um, you know, a lot of indigenous children were taken away from their families. Um, I mean, it's not exactly the same as this, but you know, 
there's a reason there's so many children of color um, in the foster care system. And I think this, you know, like there's historical precedence for that. Um, but just kind of for the rest of the chapter, um, it talks about um, how Dillard a- attended uh, Michigan for college, um, but he did have um, some problems throughout the rest of his life. Um, uh, one standout one is in 1991 when his dad died. Um, he kind of fell apart um, and he began drinking really heavily and eventually got pancreatic cancer and died um, in 2008, um, kind of keeping up that cycle of like uh, the alcoholic, the alcoholism that has kind of run through his family. Yeah. So then moving to the postscript, we find that not everybody's fate is as sad as Dillard's was. Uh, Griffin got married and went to college, got divorced, and then married again. Uh, Hunter played for two more seasons, earned his bachelor's and master's in health. Uh, Sadie's Bakery closed in 1988. Vicki Dallas continued writing in her diary. Uh, Harvey Jason uh, went into the fabric business. Jeff Crumb went to law school. Uh, Carruthers married and had three daughters. Jerry Moss uh, lives in San San Diego. And then um, Phil Bilal Nosila became a social worker. So, like, not all of them, like, most of them didn't continue on anything basketball-related, kind of, like, ignored that part of their lives and just, like, kept on moving and, like, tried to make the best of it. And most of them ended up with a fairly good life. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And it's I don't know. I feel like some people would deem it to be sad that they stepped away from basketball, but like, I mean, how many people actually keep yeah. up with the sports they play after? Also, after such like a crazy yeah. season, after, I would, mm-hmm. do not blame them for leaving it's, at all. It's pretty. I mean, I mean, like thinking about like how traumatic that probably yeah. was for them. Like, yeah. not only are they people of color, but like they're people of color at like the height of the tensions in the place where they live. Yeah. I mean, if I, it makes perfect sense to me like so much trauma attached to like something as simple as basketball that should be like an activity like an escape you know yeah Yeah. okay so overall what do we think we give this book we're rating it out of like hoops like basketball hoops (laughs) yeah out of out of five hoops um i'd probably give it like three and a half hoops i i'd give it two and a half Two and a half hoops. I was gonna solidly lowball it at one and a half hoops. Okay. Oh man. So we average out to about like two. Two hoops. Two hoops. Two whole hoops. Um, I didn't love that it was super. It was really scattered. Yeah. Like, it was kind of hard to follow at times. Mm-hmm. Like it all tied together at the end, but some storylines just felt misplaced. Yeah. And there was a lot of like extra information that they just kind of like threw in there that like never really mattered yeah I guess I also didn't like kind of like what you were saying like how scattered it was I I guess I was just confused about like what direction what they were trying to go in like if they're trying to talk about like the structural and systemic problems um or like the interpersonal ones just at the high school you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if we're trying to talk about, like, the relations between um, communities just at Central, okay. 
but like neither one was like the center of the story and i was just like i don't know it was kind of making us lost yeah yeah it was it was like too it was so much information and very all over the place 